the September 1st edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Anthony Bardaway, and I'm here with my co-host, Romil Kokratsky. It has been six months since Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We'll be getting to our reflections on that later on in the episode, but first we'll be running through our news topics, beginning, as always, with our combat update. On the Donbass front... The Russian military has, seems like it has not been able to make any real forward progress since our last episode. Again, apart from the odd village here and there. Last episode, we especially talked about their advance on Pisky, about how the majority of their effort within Donbass was focused on this one town south of Avdivka that really guards the southern gate of the Ukrainian front lines. Now Russia has claimed time and time again that they have taken Pisky, and time and time again this turned out not to be true. Pisky still holds, though the town essentially no longer exists, has been reduced to rubble, the town is heavily contested, some streets are controlled by Russia, others by Ukraine, and it continues to be a very ugly battle, but again, Russia has still not broken this town. They've also tried to bypass it by attacking other villages in the area, that would have been the next logical places to attack, but again, no success in that, in that area. As a result of this, they seem to have shifted some of their focus back to the northern part of Donbass, back up to Izum and back up to Slovyansk, but we don't know what they intend to do after those efforts fail yet again, because again, this is very, very stilted progress, if any. However, the Russians have created a new army, they're calling it the Third Army Corps, uh, which reportedly, according to uh, experts, contains some of their most advanced equipment, including the T-90 tanks. Um, it's expected that the Third Army Corps uh, will be deployed to Donbass, um, though that may now change, as we'll get into a little later in the podcast. Uh, and it might be that the Russian military uh, commanders are hoping to use this third army corps to break through this kind of stalemate that's formed um, around Pisky, around Evgivka. Well, I would still have questions about the recruitment for this army. It seems as though a lot of their more uh, traditional hotspots for recruiting people, such as uh, Buryatia or from Dagestan, has been to a large extent tapped. I've seen some much stronger recruiting efforts in Moscow, of all places, which is really their last frontier of recruitment. They've tried to avoid recruiting from Moscow as much as possible if they can avoid it. And we've heard about this advanced technology before, but the T-90s have been used in Ukraine. This isn't new, although it does seem better supplied on average than their other uh, military formations. Now, there also have been reports, especially from the Ukrainian uh, military intelligence, that as a result of this kind of trouble with uh, what Ukraine calls covert mobilization in Russia, uh, they've stepped up their use of mercenaries, especially from the Wagner company, um, run, of course, by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is otherwise known as Putin's chef. Um, due to his very close association with the Russian dictator and the fact that he kind of gained his notoriety by running a uh, the Kremlin's food service company, um, basically. Uh, the Ukrainian military intelligence says up to 5,000 mercenaries from Wagner are de deployed in Ukraine, uh, though the quality of those mercenaries is questionable, um, as the Ukrainian military has also said, that Wagner has been actively recruiting from prisons of all places, promising prisoners who sign up for the company a pardon as well as a substantial paycheck. Uh, though prisons in Russia are not especially known for providing training, um, robust physical activity, or a healthy diet. And if you're following a lot of the Russian uh, news or information outlets, they are really pumping up Wagner as the really the vanguard of the Russian military efforts. Like a lot of the times when you see that Russia takes this or that village, they'll say that it was Wagner troops in cooperation with the Russian military. Now, this is partially as a way of them 
uh, pretending that some things that are the Russian army are not the Russian army. You'll see the phrase allied forces to refer to the collective efforts of the Russian army, Wagner and the DNL, DNR, LNR. And sometimes Chechens are called allied forces, even though they literally just are a formal part of the Russian army. But, but anyway, this is they are very much uh, relying on Wagner to a pretty significant extent. If you listen to their own propaganda, which sticks out to me, Wagner is also the unit that if you've seen the video recently of a Russian soldier holding a Ukrainian skull and talking about the need to eliminate the Ukraine uh, nationhood as an idea and kill anyone who bears that idea. That's Wagner. He was the commander of uh, one of the units within Wagner, uh, the Rusich, the Rusich group. Fun story. The commander of the Rusich group is a out and out neo-Nazi who is quite literally covered in uh, Nazi symbology and tattoos, including multiple uh, appearances of the SS, uh, the swastika and the Iron Cross. Yeah, so those are the the people that they have really been leaning on for manpower. And we're going to get into talking about the Southern Front in a second here. But uh, but to loop it in more with this topic as well, in a lot of places, the forcibly mobilized uh, Shanghai stolen residents of Donetsk and Luhansk who have been forced into the Russian military service. They have broken in several locations uh, and have they ran away and needed to have the holes left by these desertions filled by Vidiva, the paratroopers, by Wagner, by other military units that have a bit higher morale. So, again, how far can these mobilizations efforts go when? there's still this heavy reliance on some of these units to actually be the ones at the tip of the spear and holding the line when they're necessary. There's only so many of these people, no matter the size of the Russian army in total. Um, But on that note, we'll be talking now about the big offensive, possibly the long awaited counteroffensive. We've been talking about all these weeks in Kherson Oblast, uh, notably west of the Dnipro River and down to Kherson city itself. The Ukrainian military has launched a a full assault and pretty much every single part of the front line in this direction. I have seen reports of multiple captured villages and from the reports of these, where these villages are, it really is everywhere. Um, Starting north from near Krivi Rig all the way down to the Black Sea coast. So there's no one place where they can say that Ukraine is breaking through and that's it. But that said, the information is very scant. The military is keeping a lot of things hush hush. Um, Some journalists have been uh, much too quick to call out some of these captured towns, as reported in Enve, the publication you work for, Romeo. The new voice of Ukraine for our listeners who do not uh, read the news or follow me on Twitter. You can find the new voice of Ukraine at english.nv.ua. Yep. Keep the plugs going at all times. So the so as Envy reported, uh, there's a lot of these villages that were claimed to have been captured, but were still in contested territory. So just going forward, if you see news about this Herson push, take everything with a heavy grain of salt, like we say about everything else. The official information that is coming out of this this area is very, very low. And in fact, the military is not allowing journalists to even embed with military units at this time in order to not compromise operational security. The only confirmed information that is uh, official information the military has released um, about the ongoing liberation of Kherson uh, is the fact that uh, Ukrainian troops did break through the first line of Russian defenses north of Kherson uh, and caused the rout of a Donetsk puppet militia as well as a unit of Russian paratroopers. That is the only extent as of September 1st that is confirmed. Everything else is, as uh, Anthony, you said, um, absolutely up in the air. This is an active and evolving combat situation. 
in which the lines of control are incredibly, incredibly fluid. The fog of war is as deep here as you're going to see it. Um, and basically people will need to sit tight and see how things shake out in a week or two or three, possibly. Uh, until then, any reports of major successes here and there are likely to be exaggerations, disinformation, or simple mistakes. Again, looking back at those uh, Russian mil- uh, information streams, some of them have been reporting where Ukraine has broken through, though, of course, they're always uh, much more conservative in their ef- in their estimates of what the Ukraine military is doing. But even through that lens, they have been reporting some pretty significant breaks in the Russian line. So it is something to be very optimistic about. Um, Ukraine is continuing to hammer at these bridges that we've been talking about for weeks at these different logistical points. Um, there has been a shelter in place order at in Novokhovka, which is the center point of the Russian occupation forces north of Kherson. So if you look at the various tertiary information, the penumbras of the information about Kherson, things look to be going fairly well, but it will take days, if not weeks, to get a proper picture of everything happening. And overall, the situation does look good for Ukraine. Um, as Anthony mentioned, the bridges are out of commission. Um, the estimated Russian garrison in Kherson is about 15,000 men. Uh, they have the capability at most to add a couple of thousand to that number um, via ferry crossings and so on. Uh, but they are completely cut off from supplies. They cannot receive supplies from Crimea. Um, there are multiple Russian units that have been redeployed from Donbass to Crimea. Uh, and Crimea itself is fortifying. But again, there is no physical way for a significant Russian force to bolster uh, the garrison in Kherson Oblast itself. And, and while the physical counteroffensive has uh, started on August 29th, um, there is, you can reasonably say that the liberation operations have begun weeks earlier when the bridges crossing the Kherson first began to be struck. And Ukraine has made incredible use of Western supplied weapons like the HIMARS to strike at Russian logistics bases in Kherson. So uh, the guys there, the Russians there, they are barely supplied. They can't receive strong reinforcements and they don't really have anywhere to flee to. Uh, All in all, there is a very good chance of winning back the Oblast. But as always, this comes with a caveat that this is war and everything can, in fact, change. Yeah, and that last part of your list, I would definitely like to focus on in that there's no good place to run from or run to because of these bridges. Either way, really. If there is a full on route or full on withdrawal, like we saw from the Kiev offensive, they can't take a lot of their stuff with them. Uh, depending on how fast, how much time they are given in order to make this withdrawal. If it's, if it's over a long period of time, then sure, they can kind of do a staged withdrawal out of the area and take s- some of their things that they need. But if it comes down to you have a week to get out, they do not have the pontoons, they do not have the ferries in order to bring all these tanks, APCs, artillery from one side of the Dnipro River to the other. They just don't. It's uh, it would be a massive traffic jam that was not seen even in the Kiev region. So if it becomes like this staged withdrawal, that just means that the battle for Herson becomes easier over time. And if it's a rapid withdrawal, if it's a collapse like we saw with Kiev, then it would be a, an utter military disaster, the likes of which Russia has not seen uh, since the beginning of the war. So that's kind of what we're banking on. The fact that their supplies and routes have been so shut down that if it comes time comes time for them to leave, it will not be easy for them to do so and bring everything along with. At the same time, retaking Kherson itself will involve urban combat. 
which as we've seen um, not only throughout this war, but throughout the Iraq war, especially um, can stretch out for months and months and months and will be incredibly bloody and dangerous um, for the local population. Barring, of course, a complete collapse, as as you said, Anthony. Um, but the Russians know that if they lose Kherson Oblast, it will provide Ukraine with the momentum to start rolling up the Azov Sea coast um, through Melitopol, uh, through all the way up to Mariupol, which is not something they can afford. So despite all of these favorable signs uh, for Ukraine, uh, don't expect the Russians to just up and leave. And I think I'll cap this discussion off with some of the some of the events going on within Kherson Oblast on the other side of the front line. Um, Ukrainian partisans have been even more active than before. Uh, Alexei Kovalev, a former member of the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada for the uh, Servant of the People faction, Zelensky's own political party, he had gone back to Kherson region to join the occupation authorities and is perhaps the highest ranked uh, Ukrainian official to turn traitor, or at least to still be on the run who had turned traitor, depending on, I guess, how you see these, these rank up. But in Kherson region, he became the deputy head of the military and civil administration of Kherson region under the Russians, and he was murdered by partisans. And he is far from the only one. Um, Dmitry Savluchenko, uh, who was the occupation head of the family's youth and sports department, which seems a little presumptuous of the Russians. He has been assassinated. Um, a another puppet official, another puppet official, Vitali Gura, who uh, was the deputy head of the Kahovka district, was also assassinated. Um, Ukrainian partisans have been uh, quite active in murdering uh, a lot of these collaborators and Russian appointees to the occupation administration. Uh, so much so that I saw that uh, Kirill Stromosov, who was the deputy head of Kherson uh, region, he gave a big speech on camera about how Kherson will never fall to the Ukrainians and how it has always been Russian and going to be a rush part of Russia. And the speech was recorded in Voronezh, in Russia, very far away, not even in a like, not even in Kuban or anything like that next next to Ukraine, but all the way up in Voronezh, which is a pretty safe distance away from uh, Ukrainian missile attacks. Now, uh, Stremusov claims that he went to Voronezh for a conference of some sort, um, though, of course, Everyone noted that he left for Voronezh basically the day of the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. So it's not hard to put two and two together in this case. Yeah, the rats are really leaving the ship, it seems like. Moving on to the next big topic um, that has uh, at least captured a great deal of my attention over the past a few weeks is the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Um, as a reminder for our listeners, the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant or ZNPP is the largest power nuclear power plant in Europe. It has six reactors. It is absolutely a ginormous, ginormous construction. Um, and it has uh, gone through quite a bit since its occupation. Um, by Russian forces on March 4th. Firstly, and I think probably the most important part, is that it is almost nearly out of commission. Um, that is, out of the six reactors uh, that were operational prior to the Russian invasion, uh, four of them have been completely shut down. Uh, two of them have been moved to cold storage. Uh, two of them have been um, disconnected from the Ukrainian grid, and the remaining two have been partially disconnected from the Ukrainian grid. 
this occurred just a few days ago, where for the first time in since it, the station became operational in 1995, uh, the first reactor was temporarily uh, due to shelling disconnected uh, from the Ukrainian electrical grid. It was still connected um, to the Zaporizhia thermal power plant, which is a different power plant, but nearby, uh, which meant that the reactor's cooling systems kept on trucking. Um, but uh, it was at least temporarily for, for a day or two there disconnected from the Ukrainian growth as a whole. Um, the Ukrainian nuclear operator says that that has been repaired. It's currently back up and running. But three of the four connections that the plant has to the greater Ukrainian grid have basically been cut off and will not be reestablished barring some serious repair work. Now, um, I think it should go without saying that you shouldn't really be conducting military activities next to a nuclear power plant. Uh, you should definitely not be shelling a nuclear power plant. And just to make it clear, Russia has been shelling the ZNPP for a few months now. They have caused quite a bit of damage uh, to facilities on the premises of the plant. The repair facility um, has been destroyed. Various other buildings have been destroyed. Um, as I said, their shelling has caught uh, various lines. Um, at one point, shelling damaged a coolant line, uh, causing the risk of a hydrogen leak. Hydrogen is highly explosive. Um, so it's not it's not great there. The workers have pretty much been uh, subjected to slave labor. They're being forced to work at gunpoint to keep this plant from melting down. Um, most of the plant's backup systems, save for the diesel generators, are inoperable. Um, now, nuclear plants have quite a few backup systems to ensure they they, they don't melt down. Um, I believe in the case of the ZNPP, there are three or four of these backup systems um, beyond, of course, the the main power system that runs the coolant uh, that runs the cooling systems. But they're all down except for diesel generators. The problem with diesel generators, which is the only remaining backup system for this plant, is that Russian soldiers have a uh, well-documented habit of siphoning diesel and selling it. So it is unclear how much diesel is actually remaining at the plant um, to operate these generators if there is further damage um, to the line. On top of that, the Russians have been shelling um, the areas very worryingly close to the nuclear containment facilities, um, the radioactive containment facilities, uh, and they have been shelling uh, ash sands next to the plant that are highly radioactive in order to uh, cause small spikes of radioactivity, presumably to scare um, the Ukrainian government. If the, if the largest nuclear meltdown in world history happens because some like Gopnik Russian lieutenant was busy siphoning off the gasoline out of a generator with, with a hose in his mouth, I that that's that's how we deserve to go. That's how the world deserves to end. That's Honestly, like it would be par for the course. I would not be surprised. I, I, I'm not saying I would welcome the scenario, but it wouldn't be one that I would be shocked by. Let's put it that way. This is this is not something that I would especially. Oh, it's, deem it's, it's just running uh, through my mind right, right now, this exact scenario. And that is the dumbest possible way that we can go out. Well, presumably, um, there, there, obviously, there has been quite a bit of international outcry about this. Um, now, nuclear experts have said that uh, the, and this is going to sound a bit strange, the only people at direct risk of dying immediately are just people in surrounding Oblast, which is about 400,000 residents. Um, they're the only ones that are at risk of dying immediately if this station uh, melts down. However, the radioactive fallout is estimated uh, to be able to easily reach Germany. So the Europeans are in Russia. It's the, the wind I've seen some of the wind patterns and they would direct it straight into southern Russia. Correct. They would direct it into straight uh, into southern, southern Russia as well. 
Um, but Anthony, if you remember, that's Kuban where Ukrainians live. So yeah, there's no way for a nuclear plant to melt down and not have it be a disaster for everyone within a very wide distance, which includes Russia, just absolute suicide, what they're dealing with. But the Russians did agree for an IAEA mission to give the plant a visit. That is the International uh, Atomic Energy Agency, the UN uh, body responsible for overseeing uh, nuclear operations over the globe. Yes. And the IAEA has said that they're going to inspect the plant to make sure that this nightmare scenario does not happen. But one, this is already a step down from the previous demands by the UN, well, requests, I don't know if you call it a demand, to turn the plant into a demilitarized zone, which seems like such an obvious thing to me. Russia has categorically refused to do that. They have um, yes, utterly refused to take this very simple step that uh, even that China has been pushing for as well. They've China seems quite irate about this particular thing where it is a pressure point, kind of like the, the food issue. It's something that affects the globe. Like you don't mess around with nuclear energy like that in such a such a dangerous way. So even China, who's um, kind of media proxies have been very pro Russia lately in every other aspect, has been very cautious about a nuclear meltdown as one would. So hopefully that's some kind of inroads in order to get them to do something. But again, they've already turned down uh, allowing it to be a demilitarized area. And the announced route that this team would take to get to the power plant has already been shelled. It is not safe for them to go. So this is very much something to keep an eye on because in the grand scheme of things, this seems to be one of the worst possible things that could happen in this war. And again, I want to reiterate that not only has Russia shelled a nuclear facility multiple times as um, harried experts from Ukraine's nuclear uh, operator Enerhuatam have said repeatedly uh, to various media outlets, the situation of shelling is outside the operational parameters for the nuclear plant. It was not built to withstand artillery barrages, um, which now seems like an oversight. Uh, but at the time, I'm sure was completely reasonable. Um, on top of that, uh, the Russian general in charge of uh, Russia's nuclear division, nuclear, biological and chemical warfare division, has come out and said that they have mined. That is, they have wired explosives throughout the facility, including in the reactor rooms. They strapped explosives. To a nuclear reactor. That is what the, the general in charge of Russians nuclear troops have claimed. Is, is that true? Of course, it's a different story. Um, but the simple matter of uh, that general saying this out loud in public as a threat is, I think, something um, that the world should take as a wake-up call. We are not dealing with a rational government. You're dealing with a fascist government. But that does kind of lead to one of my other thoughts is that um, Russia is going to make this look worse than it even is, which is already quite bad, just because such a large part of their propaganda has been, well, if Ukraine doesn't take the steps to deescalate this war soon, or if America does not take the steps to deescalate this war soon, then who knows what Russia would happen. They're crazy. They have nukes. They will blow up the world if they don't get what they want. So maybe we should just give them what they want. So there is that element to it as well. If they actually would blow up a nuclear reactor is something I remain uh, doubtful of, but they definitely want you to think they will. And just because I feel like it's necessary to tell, tell the full story here, Russia is claiming that it is Ukraine shelling this site. but. All evidence shows that this is could not even possibly be the case. The angle of attack is not even pointing towards Ukraine-held territory. 
um, reports from the area say that the sound of the initial artillery uh, launch versus the sound of it hitting anything is a very, very short time period that can only happen within about a kilometer of where this strike is happening. So Russia is doing it. All proof says that Russia is doing it. They're lying. But on that note, towards a, another, um, I guess you call it an urban warfare type scenario and another tragedy beyond comprehension is that there has been a report out of Mariupol of the total number of confirmed and projected dead out of that city. Um, the city morgue workers have leaked information to the Ukrainian side that say that there are 87,000 confirmed deaths, 27,000 missing, and that from these numbers, the projected number of dead in the city is 113,000 people. The pre-war population of Mariupol was just over 400,000. So out of every person who, it, who was in Mariupol before the war began, one out of four of them, give or take, is now dead. And considering that many people were able to, to leave Mariupol before the war fully kicked off or within the early days and weeks before the option to escape was closed off, the percentage of people who were in Mariupol when the fighting was ongoing compared to now, it, the, that, that um, 113,000 is even larger percentage of that. This is World War II scale casualties in a city the size of Miami. One in four people killed. And I'm definitely not the only one who has had trouble uh, psychologically uh digesting the absolute scale of this horror i'm someone a lot i like many other journalists expats have been to mariupol it's a city that a lot of people before the war would have talked up to no end it's a beautiful place was a beautiful place one in four killed it, it's just insane to think about um but these numbers with everything else we have to have that salt. This is information coming out of an occupied city leaked by um, workers who are there who are still doing the job of interning the dead. So records, of course, will always be questionable and the quality of information about these environments will always be um, not perfect. But if it's anything even close to that, the scale is obscene. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Nothing except an everlasting and burning hatred of Russians. And this was a city that was to a large extent uh, Russophone. Uh, these were the people that Russia said that it was coming to liberate and instead murdered a quarter of them. Moving on to a little bit of a palate cleanser. Um, I am very proud to announce that the daughter of a prominent Russian fascist ideologue, Alexander Dugan, was murdered in a car bomb last week. Duringan Dugana, like her father, uh, the apple in this case did not fall far from the tree. She had called on multiple occasions on uh, Russian television and to the foreign media. Uh, that Ukrainians were subhumans that deserved to be exterminated. Uh, she was attempting to build a reputation as the fascist princess of Russia. Um, and now she's a corpse. Uh, her father, again, fascist ideologue Alexander Dugan, he was one of the main proponents of the Eurasianist movement, um, which to cut out the pseudo intellectual pseudo philosophical claptrap uh that that this was cloaked in he uh dugan is a professor at some 
Russian university and he attempts to uh, dress up his um, quite frankly evil and disgusting and idiotic ideology in very fancy terminology to make it sound appealing to intellectuals. Um, Eurasianist theory basically said Russia is the natural hegemon of Eurasia and should stretch throughout the entire uh, continent. That is the actual point of, of this theory, of course. Um, following this, he is a promoter of something called National Bolshevism, which, as you can probably guess from the name, is a synthesis of uh, Bolshevist thought as well as um, Nazi uh, fascist ideology. Um, these two things are a match made in heaven, uh, to be quite honest, and it uh, proved to be very popular amongst uh, quite a, a number of figures um, in what is the self-declared Western left, uh, as well as, of course, throughout Russia and uh, Russia-adjacent countries. Before we get into the, the kind of theory surrounding Dugan's death, um, I wanted to talk about the facts of the car bomb itself. What is known was that um, um, Dugan and his daughter were together leaving um, some sort of cultural event, and uh, Dugan got into Dugan's car. It was the car was registered to him, and Dugan himself was about to, according to eyewitnesses. Now, this is according to um, Dugan's friends who posted about the uh, assassination on Telegram. He was about to get into that same car, but for unknown reasons at the last minute, decided to take a second car. As uh, Dugan started driving, she started the ignition, car went boom. Uh, it was a very classic Irish hello. Those are the facts of her assassination as we know them. Uh, of course, the actual story behind her assassination, there have been multiple, multiple versions, um, but there are three kind of uh, three narratives that have been promoted the most. The first, of course, is the official Russian narrative, um, which is that a Ukrainian assassin called Natalie Vovk snuck into uh, Russia specifically to uh, murder Dugina. And the Russians published a uh, published pictures of what they said was um, Wolf's SBU identification, which she had conveniently left in the open in her apartment. Yes, she brought her ID saying that she was a member of the Azov regiment and was there on their behalf, which, again, yep. as, as you're saying, was left behind. Um, conveniently. Uh, however, in the real world and not in the uh, Russian fantasy world, uh, Vovk was a refugee from Mariupol who was abducted to Russia uh, with her daughter and her cat, her 12 year old daughter and her cat, and who had narrowly been able to um, flee Russia over the land border with Estonia. Um, I think the day after or hours after uh, Dugina's assassination. Um, and again, the distance between where Dugina was assassinated and the Estonian land border quite far. Uh, Russia is a large country. And I think it goes without saying that uh, typically assassins do not travel with their 12-year-old child and cat. Luckily, uh, Wolfk is now in Estonia um, and is fine and safe. So that was the Russian version of events. A refugee woman who was somehow a member of the Azov regiment was sent there on a kill team consisting of herself, her cat, her 12-year-old child, and some random pirate, penetrated through the Russian security systems, took out a high-profile target within Moscow itself, then escaped over a NATO border within a very short amount of time afterwards at an almost impossible-to-travel speed. That's the Russian version of fence. It later came out that a group within Russia came, uh, took responsibility for the killing, the National Republican Army. Now, at first, many people thought that this also sounded fishy because no one had ever heard of them before. 
but it was later able to be established that they did have a presence somewhere with telegram channels and all that. It didn't just spring up overnight. And since then, other Russian opposition groups have said that they were acting in concert with this National Republican Army, including the uh, Free Freedom for Russia group, which is operating within Ukraine and uh, provides um, volunteer soldiers. So that's the second theory. Uh, part of what makes this maybe likely is that Ilya Panamarev, a former Russian member of their parliament who escaped to Ukraine after the initial invasion back in 2014, 2015, they are using him as their main mouthpiece. And he's generally reliable about a, as a source of information about these opposition groups within Russia, seeing as how he kind of was one of the higher ranking members of this opposition. So possibly. And right now I'm kind of leaning towards that being the most likely option. But there are others, of course, when I first heard news of this, my first thought that is it was likely going to be some kind of internal dispute within the Russian far right. Um, they do not always get along very well and is very tied to organized crime more generally. So it could just be one group taking out a rival. And again, Dugan was really the obvious target here, not his daughter. He would have been in that car if not for a last minute change of plans. Uh, Dugana is not very high profile, although she does has appeared on TV and all that. And the real gem to take down would have been Dugan himself. So it could have been another faction within the Russian far right. Um, there's also the possibility that it was by the FSB, the Russian intelligence services, because these Russian ultranationalist groups have really been pressing the Russian government to move toward a full state of mobilization, a declaration of war, an absolute state of going to war with Ukraine that the Russian government has since been very cautious of because they know that their population probably wouldn't be able to sustain that kind of thing. Uh, Russia relies on people being as inert and disinterested as possible and drafting up random Moscovite programmers to, and throwing them into the meat grinder is not the way you do that. So there has been some discontent on the side of the official Russian government and the security services towards some of these far right figures for not going along with the messaging of everything being fine. So that's another option. There are other theories, but these four seem to be the ones that have gotten the most um, explanation. Like I said, I think the uh, Russian opposition version of the National Republican Army is the most likely, and the Russian official version of the woman, her cat, child, and pirate seems to be the least likely. In other news of um, major Russian public figures who have recently died, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the USSR, perished uh, in hospital on August 30th. He was 91 years old, and he leaves a very complicated legacy. There will be many, many takes you'll read about him. He is the man who brought the Soviet Union to an end. Uh, more peacefully than it might have. You'll hear from Armenians, Estonians, Latvians, everyone else about his many, many crimes trying to hold that empire together, um, firing on protesters. He is the man who oversaw the Chernobyl disaster and who forced children to march within the radioactive glow of Chernobyl just a short time afterwards in order to celebrate May Day. There are many ways to talk about them. We're not going to focus on that now because we're a news roundup this episode. We're not going to get into discussion on the very complicated legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev. But I'm not going to say I have very positive feelings about the man. Those crimes did happen. Like I said on Twitter, to his credit, he did not do the full Milosevic of grasping on to his empire by genociding everyone in sight. But that is 
that is really damnation through faint praise. See any other long list of articles, segments, episodes that come out this week for a uh, more complete uh, discussion of his life and times, I, I suppose. This is not a Mikhail Gorbachev appreciation podcast. But before we get into our uh, final segment about celebrating Independence Day after six months of war, I just want to talk about a bit of a cultural event that happened. And that was the fight between Alexander Usyk and Anthony Joshua. This was a rematch between the two after Usyk took some of Joshua's heavyweight titles. This was a pretty important fight. I thought it was pretty entertaining, especially uh, later on in the match. Yeah, absolutely. I was watching um, with great interest, and I'm not usually a boxing fan. Uh, but in this case, it was definitely a uh, it, it was definitely a showcase of skill. I would say um, both fighters, I think, did their uh, put on an absolutely masterful show. Um, though Usyk did manage to maintain his aggression through all twelve rounds. Um, which, if you ever been in a fight, um, you may know how utterly, utterly tiring it is to keep that up, even for a couple of minutes. Um, not to say twelve complete rounds of constant aggression, constant pressure, uh, and it's clear to see in retrospect um, how he outboxed his opponent. Uh, he was able to keep up an energy uh, that Joshua, for for all his um, talents just could not keep up with. As you heard him say after the fight for quite a long while, <laughs> he kind of put on a WWE promo. Some people complained. I did not. I thought it was amazing. More promos. It was a great fight. Go back and watch it if you can. I know a lot of people in Ukraine were watching it because Usyk is such a major public figure. But one part about it really stuck out to me. And that is that both Usyk and the other big time Ukrainian boxer Lomachenko before this war were not exactly the most rah-rah pro-Ukraine people out there. Uh, Usyk is from Crimea. His family were Russified Ukrainians who were relocated to Crimea and grew up within uh, that kind of atmosphere. He is deeply religious within the Russian Orthodox faith. Both of them are. Lomachenko is as well. And Lomachenko was actually in a documentary talking about how Russian Orthodoxy kind of saved his life and how Russians and Ukrainians are the same people, that whole deal. Both Usyk and Lomachenko were like this. And since the war, this, the expanded war, I should say, began, they both changed their mind on this pretty severely. Uh, Lomachenko supported the territorial defense, um, and they both did. And for this fight, the in the leading up to it, Usyk really went hard on his Ukrainianness. He he was dressed in full Cossack regalia going into this fight, not in the ring, obviously, but beforehand. And afterwards, he thanked the Ukrainian army and and uh, asked for strength for the Ukrainian people. So it's kind of a microcosm. I, I, I talked about this a little bit before. It was kind of a microcosm about how this group of Ukrainians, you could call them kind of like the little Russian culture, the people who do honestly see Ukraine as an extension of a Russian world, have changed their mind because you can't uh, let Big Brother murder your entire family and still consider that to be a family you want to be part of. And other people, of course, took notice of it. Coming down to what I think is kind of the point of this episode was the 24th was Independence Day, and it was also the anniversary of six months of the war. It was a very important day, though all events were canceled because obviously you don't want to have mass gatherings of people at a time when a rocket can come down on your head at any given time. And that move proved to be incredibly prescient uh, by the Ukrainian authorities as this year's Independence Day uh, also set a record for the amount of missile attacks 
on Ukrainian cities and settlements um, for the entire duration of the full-scale war. There were 189 missile attacks throughout pretty much all of Ukraine um, that entire day. As anyone in the country can attest, the air raid sirens were basically constant. Um, They didn't stop until pretty late in the evening. Uh, And despite Ukrainians uh, either going to the countryside or uh, staying off the streets, Russian missiles still managed to kill a great deal of people. In one case, a Russian missile struck the train station in the town of Chaplene in Nipopetrovsk Oblast, killing around 25 people and injuring a further 30. And again, that is despite people taking precautions. Um, But it could be said that the real Independence Day celebrations were just shifted a few days back. Um, Very notably in Kiev, uh, while typically there's usually some kind of military parade to mark uh, Independence Day in the kind of Soviet tradition, uh, this year the city authorities did something a little different and instead filled the central street of Kiev, Khrushchev, with the uh, rusted and burnt out hulks of Russian equipment, proving uh, a prophecy made by the Russian propagandists true that Ukrainians would be happy to see Russian tanks in the middle of Kiev. And they were just when those tanks were completely destroyed. So I was on the street as well. I was down there a few different times. Um, and, you know, there's kids celebrating on top of these tanks. And, you know, I saw one person put their dog up on top of one to take an interesting picture. And like, yeah, that, that is Independence Day. It's independence that's unfolding in front of their eyes, being able to defend themselves from the same people who took their independence before. So it was a very powerful holiday, even if it didn't have wasn't able to fall on the day itself because of obvious reasons that we just said. But it wasn't only Independence Day. Like I said, it was the six month anniversary of the war or of this phase of the war, I should say. So I just want to ask you, like, do you have any reflections on what that date means? Half a year of everything that's been ongoing. I think it's become a cliche in Ukraine to say that the days prior to the war feel not half a year ago, but a million years ago to say that they, it seems kind of like a dream. Um, It's hard to explain to people who have not been at war in a country at war, how all encompassing the war is, even when you're living a normal life. And for much of the country, Life is as as normal as it can possibly be. If you ignore the news and ignore the fact that there's a curfew and a lot of soldiers in the streets, um, you can fool yourself into thinking in uh, Lviv and Vinitsa um, that life is just normal. But you can't really. You you can't really. The war is everything. It. it takes every single moment of your day it takes a part of your brain constantly no matter what you might be thinking or feeling you will always know that there is war that you are at war and that you are under threat um i mean it's even difficult to imagine the the first kind of days in the war when anthony and i when we were um kind of fleeing Kiev, I don't know, on day two or three of the the full-scale invasion and just sat on a train, (laughs) went to the station hearing um, explosions in the distance from um, Irpin, from Bucha, uh, sitting on a train and going literally anywhere west and like arranging our way through cabs um, to to Vinyatza that things could be calm. Um, and once they were, you start getting used to it. I think six months in, that's what really would disturb my pre-war self is the idea that you can get used to war. Um, my, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but my cousin, 
um, was wounded in the line of duty. Uh, he took some shell fragments to his head. He is still recovering from that. And um, his rehabilitation will likely take years. Um, and I'm lucky that my cousin was, was only wounded. So, so many of us um, have had friends and family members um, murdered, killed, whether they be civilians or uh, military personnel. And just one thing that war does to you is it forces you to live in the present um, because you don't know what's going to happen. Even in Vinitsa, where I live, which is almost always a, a pretty safe place. It's, it's kind of out of the way in central Ukraine. It, it, it's not on any major invasion access except from Moldova. <laughs> but since the, the, the Russian garrison in Transnistria is not, is not part of any kind of equation, means it's pretty safe. And yet still um, a Russian missile hit a building in the center of the city and wiped out dozens upon dozens of lives in an instant in the middle of the day um, just ended. And you never shake that feeling that you can be killed no matter how safe you feel at any point. But at the same time, you kind of are used to it. You, you don't think really about tomorrow. You try and, and live your life and do your job. And by doing so, you know that you are helping to win the war, even if you're not fighting, um, even if you're not in the front lines or you're not a volunteer. Just living is already defiance against the, the Russian invasion. It's already defiance of the Russian desire to genocide all Ukrainians. Just the fact that we keep breathing and, and keep laughing and smiling um, despite the war, despite the, the constant knowledge of death. Um, it's it is in itself possibly one of the most powerful forms of defiance that you can give um, a genocidal invader that you are not surrendering to, to constant fear and panic. Um, not to say that there isn't fear and panic, but when you're living in the present, knowing that at least in the back of your head at any moment you can be killed, there's no point to to give in to those feelings um because if you do you might as well be dead um and that but dying every dead ukrainian is a victory for the russians living is the the strongest resistance we can give and six months on i think i can pretty safely say we're alive and we're here and we're living and we're loving and fighting and arguing and just being vivacious. And with any luck, that will continue. Um, but I know that no matter what other tragedies and sacrifices that we will endure for however long this war lasts, that as long as Ukrainians keep this spirit alive of life, that the Russians cannot defeat us. They cannot win. They cannot break us. They cannot remove the concept of being Ukrainian. They can only just lose. The people of Ukraine are still living to take from the Hebrew saying that's similar. My my feelings are very much the same. Uh, we didn't discuss this beforehand and kind of led to the same conclusion there is that with war, it's kind of means living in a state of the present at all times. I mean, you can make plans for the future and all that, but they can change on a whim. Uh, a rocket strike in any one location can throw off your plans for anything. Living in the past is hard to do because it seems like it was so long ago. Like the mode of living in January compared to now is an absolute world apart. So the present is all you really have. Uh, six months um, is much longer than many commenters were, were giving Ukraine. The, the three days is such a joke now that it was such a joke even a week in, but now six months on the, the forecast that Ukraine would just crumble before the invader 
it's it's such a underestimation, but also a misunderstanding of what this country is and how its people feel. And just the shared sense of fate that you can just see around you at all times. You, there's street signs saying, you know, Kherson is Ukraine, uh, Berdyansk is Ukraine. There's even a new, like, you know, flower garden in the park next to me where it's a map of Ukraine with, you know, the various famous pictures th- from throughout the war and regions where they correspond with. It's a sense of unity of purpose that is hard to come by. And it's horrible that such terrible things have to be be the catalyst for that. It would just be nice if, you know, this war would wrap up sooner. If this counteroffensive in her zone goes the correct way, if the offensive pushes past the Dnipro River, folds up the rest of the Russian lines, and we can spend New Year in Mariupol, or beyond that, New Year in uh, Sevastopol. You kind of, some of these things don't seem especially realistic, but wartime is about some of these unrealistic expectations. It's about having a level of mythology and as journalists that's supposed to seem you know not not a uh, professional or proper and so when i have my journalist hat on of course i'd never run with these mythologies but in my day-to-day life you, it's good to have stories so six months on hopefully we don't have to do this episode in another six months of what does it feel like to be at war for a year or longer god forbid But Ukraine is not yet dead, and that is the important thing. As Sarah, who listeners may remember from a prior episode of this podcast, keeps repeating on Twitter, uh, Ukraine has already won. And I sincerely do believe that. Um, That we have won. Russia cannot really accomplish its goals, not in any significant way. The only thing they can practically achieve at this point is a sustained insurgency in the few occupied territories that they still hold against uh, a country that is increasingly better armed and better trained uh, and has the backing of the world's sole remaining superpower. This is not a winning position for Russia. Ukraine has already won. And no matter what happens in the future, whether we're still at war a year from now or three or the war ends next month we will always have our victory in hand so as we sign out i just want to say slava ukraini thank you very much for listening and i'll get to my you know end end card at the episode in a moment here but again i just like to thank you all for being with us for these six months or before if you're one of our few hundred listeners who are from before that it's been very important to us it your continued support of the country is very important it's very easy to forget about these things especially as time goes on and people just want normal to return at any price it seems sometimes you tune out you go back to your normal life you go back to your normal thinking and these sorts of situations if you're not living right in the middle of them just fade back into becoming just another item in the news that will get, you know, maybe a three minute little blurb on NBC at nighttime. But then other than that does not affect you in any way. So I'd just like to thank you all for being so engaged. And I deeply appreciate it on part on behalf of myself, on behalf of Ukraine without hype in general and not to overreach, but Ukrainians more broadly they feel greatly that they do get the support. So it is monetary, whether it's just moral, it's all very important. Thank you very much and see you next episode. If you wish to support this podcast, you may rate us, review us, refer us to friends, talk us up, share us on all the various forms of social media, all those lovely things you do on the internet. Or if you want to toss us a couple of bucks to help keep the podcast uh, financially viable, then please go to patreon.com slash Ukraine without hype and join one of our tiers. 
And some of the people who did so and who would like to especially thank are our patrons Deborah Grazer, Deborah Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana Kokratskaya, Rajesh, Devi, Don, Giuseppe, Sam Toman, Theo, Aidan McDonald, Alex Grochmel, Amea, Barbara, Big Rob, Brianna Rhoda, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Ostrovsky, Daniel Spring, David Paul, Deborah Lee, Eric Honnold, George, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Hoam, James Wise, Jennifer Jarvis, Jessica Eck, Jerd, Justin Devendorf, Kristen Swanlund, Laura DeLeon, Levy Grove, Lottie, Melissa Koselko, Likely Whiplash, Noam Hart, Nope, Patricia George, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, Robert Bailey, Sanjay, Scott Gringus, Steve Bien, Stephen Greenberg, T. Bart, Vic, Victoria, Leanteva, and Will Stevens. Thank you all very much for your support. And until next episode, thank you all very much. Have a good week and stay safe out there. <laughs>